Our Father, we're thankful tonight for the grace that we enjoy through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask that the Holy Spirit illuminate our hearts to this mysterious relationship between your ascended Son and in heaven and the church that remains on earth. And that we, as we explore this, we would realize more of our identity as Christians and feel that comfort that derives from the knowledge of your sovereign plan, of your provisions for us, and for the destiny that you have set before us in the church. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We're still in the review mode. And again, the reason why we're doing this extensive review is because when we get to the end of the church age and we get to deal with the rapture and we get to deal with the details of the second advent, if you don't have the details uh, going from the Old Testament into the New, um, you can really get some weird interpretations going. So, the, the Old Testament anchors you in, in looking forward to the destiny of the church. And a lot of what we're saying is to clarify the role of the church. Um, if you remember, those of you who were here last year, one of the events after the Ascension and Session, remember the next event was the Pentecost event, uh, which we'll talk about tonight. So there's our two events, the Ascension and Session, the Pentecost. And then we said the third one was the divergence of the church away from Israel. As you work your way through the book of Acts, you begin to see that the church is pulling away, except it's got a new identity. Uh, and then the fourth thing we said was that the Holy Spirit has been active for over 1900 years in maturing the church. And people lose track of that. There's not too many believers that you'll meet that have a good grasp of church history. And I can recommend the book. It's a, a lot of the history books are four or five hundred pages thick, but you don't, you're not that into it. Um, there's a nice book out called Our Legacy by Dr. John Hanna, who teaches church history at Dallas Seminary. And you can get it in a Christian bookstore, I think. They, if they can't, they can order it for you. Get it, whatever the internet sites are, and so forth. Anyway, Hanna's H-A-N-N-A-H. And Dr. Hanna has written this book showing the panorama of history. Not all the details, but just basically the, the big ideas that have gone down through church history. Well, one of the points is that you can't dip into church history at 450 A.D. and say, oh, well, that's, that's the church. And look at all the doctrine they taught then, and we believe that, and so that's it. Well, if you did that, you'd lose out on uh, 1,600 more years of development of doctrine as the Holy Spirit subjects the church to heresies along the way. And that seems to be how we learn. We learn the hard way. And so the church learns the hard way and has to confront heretics, attacks, and everything. So in the last two or three hundred years since the Reformation, the church has also faced new heresies. And to say that we're going to cease all theological systemization uh, at the level of the 16th century, the 17th century, and they say, well, we're, we're Reformed theologians. Well, the Reformation did some wonderful things, and we're forever grateful. 
of Reformed theology for its clarification of the gospel. But all due respect, the Reformation was over a only limited area of soteriology and to an extent bibliography, bibliology. But the Reformation left undone a lot of stuff. And to try to say that we are bound in the, you know, 2002 um, by 19th century conceptions of what the Bible looked like outside of soteriology uh, is to, desp- to, to demean the last 200 years of clarification of the Holy Spirit you know, in, in doctrinal areas. The church has had to face things that the Reformers never thought about. Uh, the Reformers never thought, for example, about worldwide uh, alien pagan eschatologies such as communism. Uh, they've never encountered these kinds of things and the church has had to deal with that. And so that's driven the church back to digging around and trying to see what, what's the big plan of God here for history. And those are questions that have come up. So the review that we're going through, just so you won't get discouraged because we're not handing out any new notes for a while, um, just stay with us. And as we go through these events, just pick up some more details. Those of you who were here last year, um, you've got the notes from last year. And we're going to just add a few things, a few observations. And for those of you who weren't here last year, this will be good for you because uh, this, this is the hardest section of this framework series. Um, each year it gets progressively harder because each year we're building on the years that went before and, and the scriptures went before. So once again, to get the big picture, uh, we've gone through the events of the Old Testament, the creation, the fall, the flood, the covenant, the call of Abraham. Uh, we've dealt with the Exodus. Uh, we've dealt with Mount Sinai and so forth. All these events. And we get down to the Lord Jesus Christ two years ago. And we went through his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection. And then last year, we moved further into the epistle area of history where we encountered the first thing was the ascension and session of the Lord Jesus. That was, that's his departure from the earth. And the angels, we said last time, were standing there when this event happened. And as the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the planet Earth's surface into outer space and up through the heavens, those two angels said something very important. That he's going to come back the same way he left. Which means what? It means that he's going to appear. It's going to be a public event. He's going to land on a piece of real estate. And that real estate will be Israel. And people will see it. I mean, if you were there, if you would be there with a video camera, you, you could ca- capture this. Just like if you had been there with the Ascension, you could have captured that on videotape. These are public events. They're not done off in the, in the, you know, in a secret place someplace. These are all public events. So that's something very important for Christians to understand that the Bible proclaims open history. It's history that is subject to observation. These things are not done in secret. This is not uh, meditating on Buddha's belly. This is observing something that truly happened in a place called Palestine at a certain point in history. It's just as real as Washington crossing the Delaware or World War II. 
those are historical events. So are these. Now, what happens is, is that we've all been groomed not to think this way. Because from the time we entered school system, those of us who were in the public schools, we have learned history through the eyes and ears and thoughts of secularists who have taught us history minus these events. So we can spend lots of time in school on the American Revolution, which is fine. We can spend lots of time going back into history at the time of Christ. We don't talk about Christ. We'll talk about Augustus Caesar, who, by the way, was a very interesting person. Um, or Julius Caesar. Uh, we'll discuss Roman history. But we will carefully excise from the classroom any discussion of the events of Scripture. So, therefore, you have whole generations of thousands and thousands of young people that walk out of a classroom who have already, because the, the, of all the events, if you have all these events in a history book that we have to learn, we cover up this one, this one, and this one and pretend they never happened and we won't talk about them. So somebody walks away and they heard about that, 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 and that, and that. But they didn't hear about this. They didn't hear about this. So when they hear the Bible taught and we start talking about things like the ascension and session of Christ, uh, well, that's not real history because I didn't learn it in my history class. Well, you didn't learn it in the history class because you had a very lousy history teacher, a very lousy history curriculum, frankly. So you learned in your education to extract the Bible out of history and keep it over in a little religious compartment. Well, that's not the way we, we're doing it in the framework series. We're linking the Bible to history. So, can't emphasize enough that these are public, observable, historical events. And the more you think about it, the more you realize that that's what makes our biblical Christianity, biblical Christianity. Muhammad didn't rise into heaven. Buddha didn't die on a cross. And Buddha and Muhammad and Confucius and all the other religious teachers never rose from the dead. The point is that we have publicly observable acts in Scripture that no other religion has. And that's why when we say there is no salvation under heaven except through Jesus Christ, it's because that's the way it is. So, in the Ascension and Session that we, we're looking at, we want to, uh, tonight, move on to where that leaves us in history. And I'm going to draw a little diagram up here of what we're trying to communicate. And I hope before the evening's out, uh, this will make sense to you. In the Old Testament, looking forward, here's, here's an Old Testament saint, and he's looking forward in history. And he has a lot of these prophecies in his Bible. And there's two sets of prophecies. One, talking about a suffering servant. So, one talks about the suffering servant. And, and he's kind of a Messiah figure in Isaiah and other places. The rabbis, by the way, thought of the suffering servant uh, as the son of Joseph. And they, they had two messiahs, basically, that they, they worked with. In fact, if you want to see what the confusion was, turn to First Peter, because Peter was a good Jewish boy, and he was raised with this kind of understanding of the Old Testament. 
And he comments on this. And this probably goes back many years in his own personal, personal life. First Peter 1, verse 11. Here's the picture of the Old Testament saint. And in verse 11, uh, look at verse 10, because really the sentence starts in verse 10. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories which should follow. So there was clusters of, of these glimpses. One was the suffering servant and the other one was the glorious king. So they had these two pictures. And the glorious king passages, there were a lot of Jews that said, that's the Messiah, he's going to be a glorious king. And they called him the son of David. That's the son of David, Messiah. And, but the other guys would say, well, wait a minute. There's prophecies in the Bible that talk about the suffering servant, Isaiah, for one. So now what are you going to do with that? Well, we, he's the Messiah too. Well, you can't have two Messiahs. Well, yes, you can, because we've got to be logical about this. So we'll call this guy the son of David and this guy the son of Joseph after the, after the glorious king and after the suffering Jew. The Jewish guy of Joseph. And that's how, within Jewish tradition, they tried to resolve this problem. It was a mystery to them. You know, you, how do you have two things about the same person? Two different careers and the same person? So they couldn't see how you could combine these two careers in one person. So they had two messiahs. Well, now, you, you have this situation coming. The Lord Jesus Christ comes to Israel. So let's block out a period of time. And this time period will be basically three years or so. That's the time period when the Lord Jesus Christ had his active ministry in the nation Israel. Now he came identifying himself as the Messiah. And he used Old Testament imagery. And he used Old Testament names, which we'll get into a little bit tonight. But as this three years, as the clock went on, and the Lord Jesus, as you can understand from reading any of the four Gospels, at first he began to build, if you diagram his popularity, this is, this is his Gallup poll rating. Uh, at the beginning of the three years, he starts out with zero because nobody knew him. But he had a PR man, and it was John the Baptist. He was a prophet. John the Baptist introduced the issue of the imminent Messiah. So, Jesus comes, he's introduced by John the Baptist, and his popularity starts climbing. So, more and more Jews get on the bandwagon here that we're for the Messiah. We want to follow the Messiah. And Jesus is the Messiah. John told us that. So, now his popularity keeps on going. Then, something happens. Halfway through each of the four Gospels, the, there's a reluctance to put spiritual things first. What is, it's the same old affliction that bothers us. We get our eyes on the gift instead of the giver. And so, 
the nation wanted the benefits of the Messiah because they were politically oppressed. They wanted the bennies, but they didn't really want to face the issue of my spiritual relationship with the Lord. That's, that gets, you know, I, I, that intrudes my personal life too much. Don't want to bother with that. It's a hot potato. We'll leave that one alone. Well, Jesus wouldn't let them leave it alone. And so they began to get a little cynical about this Jesus. And then finally, uh, halfway through the gospel, something else happened. The, the religious leadership began to go after him. Because we can't let this one guy get too popular. And there were a bunch of reasons politically why that happened. New Testament gives us some of them. And so the Lord Jesus Christ's popularity starts to go down. And we have a, a breach here where he begins, okay, um, I'm, I'm going down in the polls. I changed my teaching method. From now on, I'm going to teach in code. And so the disciples are puzzled because prior to this, Jesus had always been quite clear in his teaching. In Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, very clear. And then all of a sudden, Matthew 13, halfway through the gospel, he starts teaching in code. He teaches in parables. And he goes, what are you doing this for? And then they were disturbed, the disciples themselves, when they realized he was throwing a new theme in here. Hadn't heard this theme before. And the theme was that I'm going to suffer. The theme was, don't be surprised, guys. I might not be around too much longer. Well, this you can well imagine. This started, started a lot of thoughts turning. What? The I thought the Messiah was supposed to come bring the kingdom in here. I mean, I thought we were supposed to have political freedom. We were going to have, be blessed. The Romans are going to be thrown out. We were going to go back. After all, isn't that what the Bible says in the Old Testament? That we were going to have a kingdom? That the desert was going to bloom and the whole environment was going to be changed? Weren't these all the promises of the Old Testament? What does this mean? You're not going to be around pretty soon. So, now we come to a crisis. And, and of course, then finally the Lord Jesus Christ is rejected. And his crucifixion represents the national refusal to accept Jesus as the Messiah. It's a national refusal to do that. And at that point, now we have, all of a sudden, it clicks that this Lord Jesus Christ fits the profile of the suffering servant. However, while that's going on in the Gospels, and I want you to glimpse the difficulty here, the Gospels are not simple things to read. And the book of Acts is even more complicated than the Gospels. There are many themes. And for the life of me, I can never understand why for a hundred years, missionaries and mission organizations always pick to translate, they used to anyway, until new tribes talk sense into them. Um, what, do, what do they translate first? For some tribe out there with no background in the Bible, how are we going to translate the Gospel of Mark? Gotta, we, go, we want them to see Jesus. Fine. But think about it. When is Jesus introduced in this book? How many pages before you get to Jesus? Lots, right? Lots of time, lots of centuries, lots of experience. Why do you suppose that? Holy Spirit didn't have our insights? He isn't as good a teacher as we are? Or maybe the Holy Spirit had a method to his pedagogy. And sure enough, when New Tribes Mission, which is probably the only mission I know of, 
mission group that has got it right. When they go into a tribe that's never heard of anything, God or anything else, you don't start with Jesus stories. You start with the creation because that's where you define the nature of God. Then you start talking about sin. Then after that, you start talking about redemption. And then you get to Jesus. See, you don't start with Jesus. Because people don't have the categories to understand. That's like saying, well, you know, these people need to teach math. And so we're going to bring in calculus. Well, wait a minute. You don't start math with calculus. You start out with simple number theory. You get that down. Then you move on to something and get into algebra and trigonometry and geometry and those things. And now you're prepared for calculus. Well, can you imagine somebody so foolish in a math class to start with calculus? Well, that's exactly what missionary organizations have been doing for, for decades in the, how they translate the scriptures. It's ridiculous. And I've known missionary, missionologists who have argued and argued and argued with these people about this point. And it just, just goes off like water off of a duck's back. Never clicks. So there, there are people out there to this day that haven't got it right yet. Still trying to translate the New Testament. Nonsense. You don't start translating with the New Testament. Start with the Old Testament. That's the way God started. That's the way we started. So when we get to these things, we're dealing with complicated stuff now. See, this whole three-year period of the career of the Lord Jesus, right in here, those years are packed, packed with Old Testament background. And you have to know that Old Testament background to understand what is going on with this person of Jesus Christ. Then, after that, when we get down to the cross, that thing can't be explained apart from a lot, a lot of Old Testament stuff. If you don't understand the Old Testament, you're going to go like Abelard did in church history. And he said, oh, the cross of Jesus is such an inspiration. Well, so were the Vietnam War protesters in Vietnam. They used to pour Buddhist monks, pour kerosene on themselves and lit themselves in the street and burn themselves to death. I mean, there's, there's the people, you know, they're killing themselves for their cause. There's lots of inspiring people doing inspiring acts for their cause. You know, it's 9-11. You had 19 idiots that went to, wanted to go see 72 virgins apiece, and so they ran airplanes in the building. So, the point is that people do these things for causes. Now, are you going to classify Jesus with these clans? No. The Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross to do something more than just show a big public thing for his cause. And what he did is substitutionary blood atonement. People can't understand substitutionary blood atonement until you go back into the Old Testament and see substitutionary blood atonement. Why was it there? Exodus. What was the issue in the Exodus? Who's going to, firstborn son, going to die in their house? What's going to stop the angel of death? Smeared lamb's blood all over the outside. Ugly, smelly, dirty, bloody mess. It's not a pretty sight. We've romanticized the cross. But the cross is a horrible thing. And people looked upon it. I mean, it was, the, it was a sentence of death for a criminal. And here, this is a great ending to this guy. You know, he started out in the polls. We had this, this positive response. The nation turned against him and he dies like a crook. That's your Messiah? 
And that's the image, that's the burden that early Christians had to face. That their Lord Jesus was, was crucified like a criminal, right next to two of them. So there's the connotation of all that. Well now, while this is all going on, the Lord Jesus also says that I will return. And when I return, things are going to be different. So now we hook on to the other part of the Old Testament prophecy. He's going to come back as a glorious king. Now, you see, we've resolved something. We now have a new period of history, the inter-advent age. And it's the inter-advent age that allows us to reconcile those two apparently conflicting sets of prophecies. That yes, there is only one Messiah, but he comes twice. And that shouldn't be too startling because repetitively in Scripture, God does things twice. Think about it, your Old Testament history. Now, I, I think we mentioned this last week. If you think about how they were going to go conquer the land, what happened the first time they tried to conquer the land? Unbelief. Second time they conquered the land, different route, different leader, Joshua. They made it. Twice they tried to conquer the land. How many kings started Israel? You had two dynasties. Remember what they were? The first kingdom dynasty was the Sauli, the house of Saul. And we say house of Saul, but it wasn't just Saul, it was his son, Jonathan. Jonathan was in the lineage of Saul. And by all rights, in the political succession in the Middle East, Jonathan should have been the next king of Israel. That's what's so intriguing about what goes on politically. If you know political intrigue, particularly as it was manifested in the Old Testament, in, in ancient Near East, if you want to see political intrigue, Iraq's a good case. Hussein and his son. His son kills his other son. Um, the other day, that when they're fussing about the inspectors not going into his bedrooms and so on, they had a picture of Hussein coming out of this building. And if you were, know your Bible, it was very interesting. Because they showed this picture of Saddam Hussein walking out of this building, this big marble building in back of him, big door. But what the reporter didn't point out was, if you looked at the video, was either side of the door you have these great wings. And if you know your biblical imagery, you know where they appear? They appear in the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. That's why my, my favorite name for Saddam Hussein is Nebuchadnezzar Jr. Because that's basically, he, he's consciously following that ancient Eastern thing. I mean, he's building a theme park at the place that Nebuchadnezzar had Babylon. So, the guy knows his history. Well, the inter-advent age that has been introduced by the Lord Jesus Christ, this age resolves this tension between the Lord Jesus here and coming king over here. So the inter-advent age has been opened up and as, as a prep for that time, if you go into the Gospels in Matthew 13, which we did before, but you can remember if you can remember that, Matthew 13 is the Lord Jesus' announcement of this new age. 
because he goes in there and he starts talking about, and the Bible is very careful, very specific, mysteries, plural, of the kingdom. Now, what's a mystery of the kingdom? It's a truth about the kingdom that is now being revealed that wasn't revealed before. And you look at all four of those, the, the, all those parables in Matthew 13, and you'll see they deal with the issue of when he goes, what's going to happen? There's a long age here. <clears throat> now, I won't spend a lot of time tonight <clears throat> going over the, what we went over last year as far as his titles. But the titles come from three Old Testament passages. The Lord Jesus, to describe his career, his words, to describe this duality, he used three, well, correction, he used two of these names. And the third one is the New Testament doing this. One name was the Son of Man. And... The Son of Man is derived from Daniel chapter 7. Let me uh, write these on on another illustration. The first one is Daniel 7. And that's where you see the Son of Man image. And it's a passage to pay close attention to because the Lord Jesus apparently paid close attention to it. In that image, Daniel sees prophetically... World history. Remember what Daniel, anybody remember? What was Daniel's place in life when he had those visions? What was he doing? Remember? He was acting in the political infrastructure of Iran and Iraq. That's where he served, Persia and Babylon. So he, he was high up in political leadership. This guy's not, you know, somebody that just read his Torah. As a, as a little boy, this guy is up into the bureaucracy of a pagan government. He is a government official, has some authority, apparently. Well, as an official, he deals with foreign policy issues. Like uh, our president has certain people that advise him on his foreign policy. Condoleezza Rice, um, uh, our Secretary of State, Powell. And, the, and plus, of course, the bureaucrats in the State Department. And uh, so that's where Daniel was. He, that was the kind of environment he daily lived in. So on his mind, don't you suppose, where's history going? And as a Jew, what do you suppose he was thinking about? We know what he's thinking about later on because he tells us. Uh, remember, how did Daniel get there? Daniel was a prisoner of war. He was a hostage. So he was, he was brought to a foreign country as a young teenager. as a hostage. Left no mother, no dad. Boy, it was a teenager all by himself here. And he had to fend for himself. And he apparently had very good training in the Bible. So when he hit the suffering, he was able to endure it and make do. But he never lost his Jewish, Jewishness. And while he was there in this pagan nation... Apparently, having great uh, abilities, he was promoted. It's like today, uh, people, Christians can do well at certain jobs. Just, you know, people are so sloppy in the workplace today. If you come to work on time, you're exceptional. I mean, people promote you just because you're, you're doing something besides breathing and actually accomplishing something at least for an hour or two of the eight hours. 
So Daniel was promoted because he, he did things. Now, they may not like him as a Jew. See, this is the difference. People don't have to like you. Get over that. People want to respect you. They may not like you. They may never like you. You can't, you can't worry about whether people like you or not. That's the trouble with Americans. We're always worried about what the world likes us. Never forget an interview with a British guy. And he was, he was talking to one of the talking heads on television. And the guy said, you know, uh, or he said to the guy, he says, you know, I can't understand you Americans. He says, you're, you're the superpower in the world and you're worried about whether people like you or not. When we, of course, in his arrogant English demeanor, he said, look, when we English rule the world, the world hated us and we loved it. He says it meant that they envied us. It meant that we were so good they envied us. And we took it as a compliment when people didn't like us. So that's something we don't learn as Americans. And we're uncomfortable still to this day about whether, you know, Timbuktu out there likes us or votes for us in the United Nations, whether it's right or wrong. Well, Daniel lived in that kind of milieu. And he had a vision about where history was going. And there were going to be four kingdoms. His, the the uh, starts right off with the Babylonian, which is today equal to Iraq. The Medo-Persian Empire, which deals with half of Iraq and Iran. The Greece, the Grecian Empire, which we know centered in Greece. And Rome, centering in Italy. And each of these four kingdoms were represented in this vision by animals. Not people, animals. Now, there's a reason behind that. Because the fifth kingdom that is pictured here is going to be the kingdom of the Son of Man. The fifth kingdom is the only one symbolized by a human being. Why? I believe that the reason why the symbolism switches from animals to people, going back to Genesis, is that only people are made in God's image. And that fifth kingdom is the only kingdom in world history that is suitable for human life. All the other kingdoms of the world that have ever happened, including American society, will be looked upon as subhuman when Jesus Christ comes and reigns in his millennial kingdom. There will be the perfect society. The society that the communists tried to bring in by world war. That Marx said, the dictators of the post, we've got to get rid of all these things, we've got to change the institutions. God says you don't change the institutions, you change hearts. And so, in the fifth kingdom that will come, it will be a kingdom, a political, organized society that will have all kinds of industry in it, farming in it, leadership, local associations, government, and it will be fit for human life. And so the picture here is that we have ultimately this kingdom will smash all those other kingdoms. Why? Because their bestial nature is the subhuman consequence of the fall of man. They are inadequate social organizations. Yes, the communists were right in saying society is evil. Where communism went wrong was thinking they could redeem society by some political gimmick. You can't redeem society by political gimmick because all you do is replace one animal with another one. So the solution is the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, that scares people. It scared the reformers, by the way. Reformed theology couldn't stand this idea of the fifth kingdom. And they, they considered this a radical, the radical reformers, they call these people. So here we have this kingdom and the Son of Man is associated with this kingdom. And watch when the Lord Jesus uses it in Matthew 26, verse 64. Here he is. Now he's being interviewed prior to his crucifixion. And he says something here. Just It took, only took two sentences. But Matthew 26, verse 64. Watch how everybody around the Lord Jesus just about freaks out when he drops this one on the table. Matthew 26, verse 64. Verse 63 for context. Here he is, public hearing, investigation. We'd say it's a trial. It's kind of a silly trial, mock trial, improperly administered trial. But in verse 63, they keep interrogating the Lord Jesus. Notice in verse 62. They keep asking him and asking him and asking him, and he refuses to talk. He kept silent. So finally, in verse 63, the high priest gets so exasperated by not have Jesus not answering his questions that he comes out and he says, I adjure you by the living God, you tell us whether you are Christ, the Son of God. Now, Jesus didn't say yes. He, 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 he means yes. But watch how he says it. Jesus said to him, you said it yourself. In other words, you just admitted I am. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see. And the quote in verse 64 comes from Daniel chapter 7. The Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven. Who's going to see it? The high priest is going to see it. And he's going to see him coming on the clouds of heaven, not going to through the clouds of heaven. That's not the ascension mentioned in verse 64. This is his return to earth. You will see him coming on the clouds of heaven. And you can see verse 65 what happened. The high priest tore his clothes. He has blasphemed. Now, obviously, if the priest has that reaction, verse 65, verse 64 must have a lot of connotation to it. The, the image of the Son of Man is the, uh, the image of the leader of this future, perfect human society who is divine himself. In other words, history will end with this divine human figure. And it carries this connotation of divinity or the priest wouldn't have torn his clothes up. The priest really got ticked at this one. This really was something else. So, the fact that it had that effect in the courtroom tells you how loaded this passage is. And we, with our Gentile background, we don't get all that. Now, I'll just hurriedly refer to the other two of the three passages of the Old Testament that Jesus used to develop who he was. One is Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is really built from 2 Samuel chapter 7 and the Davidic covenant. Psalm 2 introduces the name the Son of God. Now, that, that title had reference to the Messianic King sitting on the throne in Jerusalem who, unlike all other kings, was not corrupt. What's the argument of the Bible in Samuel Kings? Remember, we said here, it was good review for you. 
Remember this, because the Bible teaches you how to think politically. And as you hear all the nonsense that happens in pre-election, just pack these ideas away. The book of of Judges argues that when you have a people doing their own thing, perfectly libertine, um, uh, libertine democracy, if you will say that, where every man does what is right in their own eyes, the whole society goes down the tubes. And it's an indictment of the fact that you can't have democracy with sin natures. Because it will always, the majority will always vote for the flesh. So, that's why democracy, by the way, has had an awful history of trying to, we've tried to transplant democracy from America into every nation on earth, and it always blows up in our face. And the reason is that we don't know American history. It flourished here because of the Christian roots in our country. That's why it worked. But you can't take democracy that worked with Christian roots in America and take it to the land of the Hottentots someplace that don't have any Christian base, give them the right to vote. What does that mean? Maybe I want to be cannibals and so we all vote to go eat the other tribe. That democracy is not going to work, right? So, democracy doesn't work by itself, and it doesn't work not because it's a bad idea. It's really a good idea. God, the Holy Spirit, recognizes a democratic issue in the church, give and take, distribution of spiritual gifts. But it it doesn't work with a sin nature. You have to have some divine restraints going on in order to make democracy work. So, Judges is the book that refutes the idea that we can just go out and have democracy and everybody will be fine. The argument in a nutshell, Judges says that people are sinful. Now, the argument of Samuel and Kings is what? What did the people do? They had a kingdom. They had a government. The transition chapter is 1 Samuel 8, one of the great political chapters of the Bible, where Samuel said, okay, Israel, you'll get a king, but let me tell you what he's going to be like. And it's one of the most Back in a this was done in a thousand A.D. people, and he anticipates totalitarian government of the 20th century, because in that address, the prophet Samuel says, "You get a king, and here's what's going to happen: He's going to tax you and tax you and tax you. He's going to take away your freedoms, and you're finally going to all be servants of him. You're going to have a bureaucracy that you can't believe that you're going to create by going to a monarchy." And, to, and lose your freedoms. So, Samuel and Kings is an indictment of leadership of the flesh. So, whereas Judges refutes democracy in the flesh, Samuel Kings refutes totalitarian government in the flesh, whether it's communist brand or whether it's uh, fascism or whatever it is, where you concentrate power in one or two or three people That's bad, too, because why? Because the one or two or three people have what? It's in nature. So, so in Samuel, 2 Samuel 7, God says, the house of David I have chosen, and this dynasty will never go away. We will have sinners sit on that throne, and I will discipline them and discipline them and discipline them, but that dynasty will will go on. Now, how can a dynasty go on forever? 
it either have you have an infinite number of people or it has to terminate in one perfect leader. Right? It's the only way you can have an eternal dynasty. So, guess what? It terminates in the ideal son of David. And that ideal son of David is looked upon prophetically. After you have about one or two kings on the throne, the prophets begin to say, whoa, hold it. You know, we thought it was great to have a king here, but uh, these guys don't cut it. So, they speak, the Holy Spirit leads them. See how the Holy Spirit leads? They wanted a king. Okay. All right. Try it. See what happens. And that's how the Holy Spirit always does. He lets us wallow in it until we get sick of it, tired of it. Okay. I think I learned my lesson, Lord. Now, what have you got for me? And then he says, okay. You listening now? Okay. Here's what I have for you. And he starts to develop this ideal king. And that title of that ideal king is the Son of God. And that's Psalm 2. And then we have Psalm 110, the most quoted psalm in this area in the New Testament. In Psalm 110, we have the priesthood of a king. That's rather Gentile, by the way, because the priests and the king in Israel were separated. Jesus could not have been a priest after Aaron because he wasn't. What tribe was Jesus? He was the tribe of Judah. And what was the tribes of the priesthood? Levi. So, Jesus couldn't be a Hebrew priest. So, that's why he combines the Melchizedekian priesthood that was a Gentile priesthood. Well, you say, well, why is he bringing Gentiles into it? Because what was the precursor of Israel? Israel didn't come into existence just for herself. Three promises to Abraham were land, seed, and worldwide blessing. Right? Abrahamic covenant, basic covenant of all the Old Testament. Land, seed, and worldwide blessing. Why did Israel exist? She's going to have her own land, regardless of Arafat and the UN and Egypt and Iraq. Israel will have the land of Israel. They will have produced a seed. The seed has been produced, the Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, they will be a worldwide blessing. They're not yet worldwide blessing. But they will become a worldwide blessing. So, these three passages, and by bringing the priesthood in, and sin, then you've got to deal with a priest function, which is man going before God. So, you, to get to the ideal society, you have to deal with the social sin and the raw material from which you're going to make your society or kingdom. And that means you have to bring people into a confrontation with a living God, and that's the role of the priest. So, at this point, we have something interesting and quite unique in world history. Here is where you have political leadership that accomplishes also redemptive uh, functions of bringing the people that we rule into a relationship with God. So, the king, priest, is also an image of the Messiah. You see how, how you could devise, I mean, you want to teach political science? I mean, enough material in these three passages for a whole semester course. And you could interact with all the different ideas and so on. Nobody does it, of course, because nobody reads the Bible seriously. But if somebody were to read the Bible seriously and do something like that, I think it would be a fantastic course. So, anyway, you have, you have this, this background. The Lord Jesus pulls out of these ideas. He's not inventing this. 
The Lord Jesus is simply using what is already there in the pages of the Old Testament. Now, let's go back to this interim age. Every one of those three passages we just cited, if you were to go back to Daniel 7, Psalm 2, or Psalm 110, you would notice in the text that this figure receives power and honor and glory, but has to wait. He has to wait for something. Psalm 110 says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So there's a waiting period. And that's something else that's revealed, that this figure, grand as he is, has to, by the will of God, wait on something to happen. And that introduces us to what is going on in this inter-Advent age. There's something has to happen here, or the millennium could have theoretically come back in the New Testament. Well, what we have introduced here is a period of time in which God is doing something that is kind of preparatory. For the kingdom. It's a time when God is gracious to the world prior to his judgment. This is the last era in church history. I mean, in, in Bible history. This is what's called the last days. It's not last days just because Jesus might come tomorrow. It's the last days because this is the last age of grace. God has sent his son. His son was rejected. And his son goes to heaven and he's sitting there tapping his foot. Waiting. 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 And part of the reason why he's waiting is so that individuals can come to a relationship freely as the Holy Spirit woos them to Christ without compulsion, without coercion until the day when it's too late. Because once the Lord Jesus Christ comes, there's a separation. And the, the day of evangelism just stops right there. That's it. Of course, it goes on in one sense of the kingdom because of natural birth. But the idea is that with the inter-advent age ends. So now let's turn to Acts. And what we want to do is just remember a few things that happened in the next event. Right after the Lord Jesus was talking to them and he he gave them the final instruction in Acts chapter 1. He said he wanted them to stay. He wanted them to stay in Jerusalem for a while, to wait. And he yet at the same time in verse 8, he said they would be witnesses out from Jerusalem. Now the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost. That's Acts chapter 2. Verse 1 of Acts chapter 2. <clears throat> the day of Pentecost had come, they were gathered together, and suddenly this thing happens. The thing to notice is it happened on a Jewish calendar day. Anybody remember the Jewish calendar day that Jesus died? What was that? In the Jewish calendar, Jesus died on the day of Passover. The Holy Spirit comes exactly on the day of Pentecost. Does that tell you something about the Jewish calendar? It's divinely inspired. And you know the Jewish calendar has three other holidays that haven't been fulfilled yet. 
One is the Feast of Trumpets. One is Yom Kippur. And the other is the Feast of Tabernacles. And they're all in the fall of the year. All the spring holidays have had something happen on them. But the fall holidays have not. And that has led many to believe that the Lord Jesus Christ will establish the Millennial Kingdom some year in the fall. And it will be on exactly the right day of the Jewish calendar. But here, the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost. And there are three miracles in verses 2 and 3. They're all public. They're all observed. If you had a tape recorder, you could have retaped it. If you had a video camera, you could have captured it in, in video. Came a noise, verse 2, like a violent rushing wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. There appeared to them tongues as of fire. And think of lightning. You ever see how lightning forks coming out of a cloud? Takes a path of least resistance and sprays all over the place. It's probably something like that. Tongues of fire, because fire can mean that. Um, it's always pictured as a nice little gaseous flame. And artists always do that. And really, it might not have been. It might have just been like, sort of like lightning. Um, I don't want to ruin your artistic image if you had that, but uh, just a suggestion. In verse 3, though, you have both noise, public noise that could have been tape recorded, and you have a optical phenomena looking something like this fire business, and it rests on each of these guys. It doesn't kill them, but it rests on them. And then they began to speak in verse 4 with other languages. And down through church history, we've had people that have insisted that these languages are some sort of glossolalia in the sense of some blah, blah stuff. That's not what the text says here. This is known human languages. And what it is, think about it. What was the nationality of these people? Jews. Through what language had Revelation generally come for the last 1,400 years? What language? Hebrew. Now, all of a sudden, what's happening? The gospel, the announcement of the Lord Jesus Christ, is now being heard in all these languages. He gives you the list in verse 9 and 10. There's almost a dozen different languages that suddenly the word of God is being preached in all these different languages. So, that is an, as an adumbration of the fact that what God is now doing is something that is global. It is not limited to just Israel. Well, that was prophesied in the Old Testament because after all, when the Messiah would come, he would come and he would set up this millennial kingdom and the kingdom was of this world. It was global. So far, nothing, nothing out of the ordinary as far as the Old Testament is concerned. Well, now Peter gets up and he makes an announcement, beginning in verse 14. He makes two speeches, one in Acts 2, one in Acts 3. And in these speeches, Peter links the event with the ascended Christ. Notice his argument. He cites Joel that refers to a spiritual thing that's going to happen prior to the kingdom. And then he says, verse 22 he says, these wonders and signs God performed in your midst. Why? Through Jesus. And later through some of the apostles. You nailed him to a cross, verse 23. He cites Psalm 6 for the resurrection. And then he concludes, verse 33. Here's where he links 
Pentecost, the second event we're talking about, with the first event, the ascension and session of Christ. Look at verse 33. He says, Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured forth this which you both see and hear. So what Pentecost becomes, this second thing here, point one is the cross, point two is Pentecost. Pentecost is the manifestation on earth of what has happened in heaven. It's the verification that Christ has arrived in the throne room, that he has been accepted by God the Father, and that he has gained what he said he was going to gain. I will pray the Father and he will send the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit came. So Peter connects them all. So what's happening here is something that was prophesied to happen before the great kingdom, the great day of the Lord, and now it's happening. Then what Peter does, he issues a gospel invitation, or what looks like a gospel invitation. And he says, verse 37, 38, Repent, let each one of you be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. You receive the gift of the Spirit, promises for you and your children for all is far off. And it describes after these people become Christians, they have fellowship together in verse 42. But interestingly, they stay together as Jews and they stay together in the temple community. There's no sense that what we have in Acts 2, there's anything that's unusual as far as Israel goes. There's not a, a church movement over against Israel. It's a group of Jews. They're all Jews. No Gentiles here yet. They're all Jews. They're sitting in the city of Jerusalem. They go back into the temple precincts every day and worship. Now, in Acts 3, the Lord the, uh, Peter gives his second sermon. There's another thing that happens, another event. And Peter explains it again. And he says, uh, because of the healing... Verse 18, the things which God before announced by the prophets, Christ should suffer, thus he is fulfilled. Repent. Now, look at how he phrases this. Repent, return, that your sins may be wiped away, in order that... Now, look what he says. That the times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Now, if you know the Old Testament, that's a code. The times of refreshing are simply a Hebrew code for the Millennial Kingdom. So what Peter is doing here, he's saying, if you will accept the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, the kingdom can come and come now. Now, this is a strange thing. And this is one of the complexities, and we'll have to deal with it, obviously, next week and more so. But in Acts 2 and Acts chapter 3, Peter's sermons are crucial to understand something that happened right here at the origin of the church. The church appears to be missing here. These are Jews in the nation Israel worshiping at the temple. And nothing is said about separating from Israel here. In fact, if they would accept the Messiah, they would have the kingdom. And the kingdom they're talking about is the kingdom of Old Testament prophecy. So, in a nutshell, what we're saying is the inter-advent age was viewed as a very short time period here. It was collapsed down. We know it's longer. But then it was collapsed down to a very short time. Now, what, what's going on here? Well, last year I spent some time on this. So I won't, I'll just hurriedly cover it here in a few minutes. If you want the key to what's going on here, the Lord Jesus gave it the key when he gave the parable in Matthew 22. 
Because in Matthew 22, he said the king would send out an invitation to a feast. And it would fall on deaf ears. Invitation number one. Then he said, and the king will send out a second wave of inviters. And they will not only be rejected, but some of them will be killed. How many apostles were killed during the Gospels? None. How many people do you see martyred in the book of Acts? That's where the death begins. So Matthew 22 is actually a parable prophesying that Israel will guess. Here's our number two again. How many invitations does the nation Israel get? Two. They get one by the Lord Jesus before he was crucified. Jesus says, behold, the kingdom is here. And they said, we don't want you. Peter acts as the interpreter for Pentecost. He invites the nation again, right smack dab in the political center of the nation of Israel. He goes on record as saying, if you now will accept it, after you've crucified Christ, he ascended to the Father's right hand, he sent the Spirit, do you get it, Israel? Because if you do, you can come, you can trust him, and you'll have your kingdom. And of course, we know that by the end of Acts, Something has happened. It doesn't, they don't do this. And so Matthew 22 said, there's a third thing that's going to happen. The third thing, according to Matthew 22, is the king is going to send his armies and he's going to burn the city down. And what happened to Jerusalem in 70 AD? It was burned down. So this is a, this is a testimony to the termination for a time being of the role of Israel. Next week, we're going to deal with a beginning now of to sense our identity as Christians in this new thing called the church, which is going to be seen as something entirely different from Israel. Israel originated by virtue of something that happened on earth, the call of Abraham. How did the church originate? By something that happened where? If Pentecost is the start of the church, and we'll prove that next week, what was Pentecost a result of? The Lord Jesus Christ ascending to the Father's right hand to send the Spirit. That's why, that's why when this was understood, uh, this idea of the church being distinct from Israel, why teachers referred to the church as God's heavenly people and Israel as God's earthly people. There's a distinction because Israel is the earthly people of God. Israel was born on earth through earthly things and has an earthly destiny to bring a kingdom to save the world from itself. The church has another function. It was born in heaven through the Holy Spirit being sent from heaven and is going to go back to heaven to be raptured and to be forever with the Lord. It's a heavenly destiny. So there's two different bodies, two different destinies. And this has profound implications with how you interpret the return of Christ and what goes on in this complex of events that we'll see. Father, we thank you for our time tonight. We thank you that you provide for each of the ages of history in which you work. And we must, as, as believers in our own age, in this church age, understand the game plan and see our destiny, see what you're accomplishing, that we can walk in faith according to your word. In Christ's name, amen.
We customarily have a question and answer time. Uh, I'm going to just have it for maybe five or ten minutes tonight because I've been up since four o'clock and I'm out on the trip tomorrow. So um, to conserve energy, I'll just have it for five or ten minutes. Right. We'll have a break time, so if you have to leave, go ahead. But for those who normally stay, um, it'll just be a very abbreviated Q&A. We have time for a little bit here. Yes, right. Melchizedek? He was what? No, he's Gentile. Yes. Okay. Okay. Lynn's raised a question about this Melchizedek figure. And this guy is a real mystery because scholars have thought maybe he was Shem, whoever he was, but the Bible just doesn't clarify other than just paints this portrait of Melchizedek. Now, his name, take his name apart, and um, the Hebrew noun for king is MLK. The Hebrew, you, if you know your consonants, you can fill in the vowels, kind of. And so, it's Melk. Melk, there's the word king. And Zedek is the Hebrew word for righteousness. Zedek. So, he's the king of righteousness. And he existed in Abraham's day. And you remember the story, he was the king of Salem. And that was the place where Jerusalem eventually came to be. But he was a Gentile. He was a Gentile that preceded Abraham. And what's significant about him, and I think Paul Richardson in his book, Eternity in Their Hearts, has it very right, that he probably represents what may have been typical of the way God reigned prior to the call of Abraham in history. In other words, between the Noahic flood, when Noah and his sons went forth on earth. Oh, and let me make a little digression here. Some of you have asked about the sons of Noah that I keep talking about, you know, and the, the Hamites were the inventors and so on. That comes out of work by, by a guy by the name of Arthur Custance, a Canadian guy. Worked for the Canadian Department of Defense. And he was a PhD type in linguistics. I did a fascinating series, and the books have been out of print for years. Uh, Zondervan published it as uh, The Three Sons of Noah, and it went out of publication. Nobody can get hold of it, and it's, uh, you have to go to a used bookstore, and then, I, you know, it's just hard to get. I've got one of the few sets still left of his paper, papers. He used to publish papers about 40 pages long on different topics. Fascinating, fascinating topics. Well, anyway, somebody found out that there's a website where you can go download these things. Somebody graciously consented to put them on the Internet. And I believe it is customs.org, C-U-S-T-A-N-C-E dot O-R-G. And uh, that might be a source if you happen to be looking for that and can't find it anywhere else because it's not, unfortunately, it's just never been put back into publication. Anyway, um, in the period between Noah and Abraham, we know the sons of Noah went out to colonize the planet. We know that they carried knowledge of the word of God because they had at least the first ten chapters of Genesis with them, or first nine chapters. So, all people groups originally had the light. It's not true that, you know, the light only came to some people. No, it was lost, maybe, yeah. But it originally was there in the lineage. Everybody can trace their lineage back to somebody who knew Noah 
we all trace our genes back to that family. So if you go back far enough in your family line, through all the unbelief that may have been there, sooner or later you're going to arrive back at someone in your line who had access to the Word of God. Well, Melchizedek was one of these people. And he ruled as both king and priest. And nothing more is said other than the fact that he put these two functions together. We would call the kind of violation of separation of church and state. But apparently he ruled that way. And the significance is that, um, that Abraham paid tithes to him. You know, that goes on to an interesting thing in the book of Hebrews. So, this man is a mysterious figure who represents pre-Israelite age, when, when it was the age of the Gentiles. And God had his way of working back then. We, we don't think about that. There were centuries and centuries went on when Israel wasn't around. There was no Israel. Well, then how did God work with the different people groups? He worked through, apparently, like Paul Richardson points out in his book, Eternity in Their Hearts, he ruled in all these little groups and colonies, and he had his righteous people, like Melchizedek, around, and they knew enough. They were the ones he had bread and wine. I mean, look at that. He had a lot of knowledge of the Word of God. And these guys apparently just phased out. You know, the societies tubed out, got pagan, and maybe killed off people like Melchizedek and others. Uh, in his book, Richardson deals with some cases of in, in the Western Hemisphere where this might have been true. You trace back some of these tribal areas, and they can all give this account of the high God that left us. So they have this memory that back one time before we worshipped all the spirits, we used to worship one God. But he, he somehow he's left us, or he disappeared, he got mad at us or something, and, and so we don't know him anymore. So now we have to worship the demons. So there's that history. We call that primitive monotheism. Customs has a neat paper on that too, by the way. Um, so you have this in the history of the human race, this root in Melchizedek. Well, when does Melchizedek come up again in Scripture? Psalm 110. And Psalm 110 is written by, the human author is David. And um, uh, the Old Testament professor at Dallas now, I can't think of his name, Merrill, Dr. Merrill, in his book, uh, The Kingdom of Priests, I think that's the name of his book, summarizing the Old Testament, and he points out something very interesting. Remember, uh, Saul was rejected because he sacrificed and he, he messed around and he didn't wait for the priest to come? Now, uh, Merrill points out, he said, however, David managed to do things that really bordered on priestly duties. For example, it was David who demanded that the cultus, that is the, the tabernacle and everything, be put at Jerusalem. There was no mandate from the priest to do that. David did that. He wanted that in Jerusalem. And you remember the great dance that he had as he went processions through the city and his wife couldn't stand it. She was Saul's daughter. And he was, points out that David was, was taking an active role really to the point that was kind of out of line as far as the role between the Levites and the kings, the, the Torah kind of kept those guys apart, each with its own duties. David kind of mixed them. And apparently, he was reverting in his mixing of those two, he was reverting to an ancient pre-Israelite model of Melchizedek. So that's the background for that psalm. And then David, like he always does, he knows he's a sinner. So he sees God doing these things 
but he knows he's not the guy, but he knows it's going to be out of his loins. So he projects onto the future the trends that he sees God working in his life. That's Psalm 2. Son of, son, you know, he's going to be coronated king and so on. But he projects it onto this future king who will be fulfilled it. So Melchizedek represents, I believe, why that's brought in in the New Testament is because that's the way the author of Hebrews has of showing that the mission of Israel wasn't unto itself. The Jews had a tendency, because they're so persecuted, that, you know, it's like us sometimes we get with Christian and our, how the Lord works in our lives. You know, it's like this, and we don't, we, we don't see that, wait a minute, we're here for a larger purpose. And the Jews had that provincialism. And that had to be broken in order to prepare for the church. And Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, does that. And he uses the Melchizedekian arguments, you know, to refute the law, the new priesthood, new law, and he uses that as a mechanism. And he argues quite parallel to Stephen. Because you remember before Stephen was killed in Acts 7, he gave that big, long speech, and he got everybody so angry that they stoned him to death. Well, if you go through the themes in Acts 7, and you carefully look at the logic, first of all, when Stephen is introduced, he turns out not to be a Galilean Jew. He turns out not to be a Jerusalem Jew. He turns out to be a diaspora Jew. Now, that's interesting. He's one of the early people who is a Jew who's traveled around the world, traveled more outside of Israel. He's not provincial like Peter, for example, was a Galilean Jew, probably never walked outside of the land of Israel. Well, now you have this guy who's been around. And it seems like the Holy Spirit worked in Deacon Stephen's life to give him a grasp of a larger picture. So he gets up when he's being attacked and he says, let me tell you something, Israel. And he tells all the Jews, he says, isn't it interesting, three of your most cherished beliefs come from Gentile and from Gentile lands. And they are shocked. He says, first of all, ask yourself, where did the first Jews start? In Israel or outside of Israel? Who? Outside of Israel. Oh. Israel comes from a Gentile land. Then he says, and where was the Torah given? In Israel or outside of Israel? Oh, Mount Sinai. That wasn't really part of the promised land. Ooh. So it's, it was, territorially, it was given in Gentile environment. And uh, by the way, uh, the temple that you worship so hard and so fast, um, what has been your history of treatment of that temple? down through the year. Uh, desecrating it, so forth, so on. So he really attacks the Torah, the temple, and the nation, national existence of Israel. Not attacking it in a bad sense, but saying that it's part of a larger purpose that roots back to the third part of the Abrahamic covenant, which was what? Worldwide blessing. Israel is not a hothouse. Israel is to grow plants in its hothouse, but the plants are to be brought out into the world. And that's the image that you get. That's the breaking up in the book of Acts. That's where the church starts to become visible now. See, They're going to they're take that little thing and run with it. So, all that to say that you have these churning themes in the Old Testament. So, so multifaceted. And, and you find the Holy Spirit taking these things out in the book of Acts and developing this new thing called the church. And Melchizedek's part of it.
Any other questions? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, they, that, that was one. And then they had other... If you get into the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Qumran community, they had some other ideas of it. Um, but they, you could tell that these people were... They had the prophecies. They just couldn't get them together right. And it's sort of interesting. Sort of like we are. We have so many mysteries in our life. Well, why did God do this? And he promised to do that. And, how do you, and what we have to realize is he, he has a method in his madness. And it's maddening sometimes to, to wait on his method. But that's the way it always has been. Think about the conflict in the Old Testament between what Paul mentions in Romans 3. How can God justify the wicked and still remain just? And that's a mystery. Until the cross. And all of a sudden, oh, that's how he does it. So it's encouraging to look at things like the cross resolving that contradiction the first and second advent as a way of logically reconciling this other contradiction so that what those resolutions do for me is that it tells me when I can't figure something out, it's not a conflict in God's plan. It's just, I just can't get the pieces together. And someday, you know, we'll see. The pieces will all fall together. It's just right now they don't fit too much. So... Well, next week we're going to go on and hopefully we'll only have about two more weeks of review. I want to show how the church develops and I want to get clear in our minds the difference between the church and Israel before we start going into the prophetic passages. Okay?